Section 101 of Mark Twain, A Biography. Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, A Biography. By Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter 205. Speeches That Were Not Made. In a volume of Mark Twain's collected speeches, there is one entitled German for the Hungarians, address at the Jubilee celebration of the emancipation of the Hungarian press, March 26, 1899. An introductory paragraph states that the ministers and members of Parliament were present, and that the subject was the Ausgleich, i.e., the arrangement for the apportionment of the taxes between Hungary and Austria. The speech, as there set down, begins, Now that we are all here together, I think that it will be a good idea to arrange the Ausgleich. If you will act for Hungary, I shall be quite willing to act for Austria, and this is the very time for it. It is an excellent speech, full of good feeling and good humor, but it was never delivered. It is only a speech that Mark Twain intended to deliver, and permitted to be copied by a representative of the press before he started for Budapest. It was a grand dinner, brilliant and inspiring, and when Mark Twain was presented to that distinguished company, he took a text from something the introducer had said, and became so interested in it that his prepared speech wholly disappeared from his memory. I think I will never embarrass myself with a set speech again, he wrote Twitchell. My memory is old and rickety, and cannot stand the strain. But I had this luck. What I did was to furnish a text for a part of the splendid speech which was made by the greatest living orator of the European world, a speech which it was a great delight to listen to, although I did not understand any word of it, it being in Hungarian. I was glad I came. It was a great night, and I heard all the great men in the German tongue. The family accompanied Clemens to Budapest, and while there met Franz, son of Louis Kossuth, and dined with him. I assure you, wrote Mrs. Clemens, that I felt stirred, and I kept saying to myself, this is Louis Kossuth's son. He came to our room one day, and we had quite a long and very pleasant talk together. He is a man one likes immensely. He has a quiet dignity about him that is very winning. He seems to be a man highly esteemed in Hungary. If I am not mistaken, the last time I saw the old picture of his father, it was hanging in a room that we turned into a music-room for Susie at the farm. They were most handsomely treated in Budapest. A large delegation greeted them on arrival, and a carriage and attendants were placed continually at their disposal. They remained several days, and Clemens showed his appreciation by giving a reading for charity. It was hinted to Mark Twain that spring that, before leaving Vienna, it would be proper for him to pay his respects to Emperor Franz Joseph, who had expressed a wish to meet him. Clemens promptly complied with the formalities, and the meeting was arranged. He had a warm admiration for the Austrian emperor, 
and naturally prepared himself a little for what he wanted to say to him. He claimed afterward that he had compacted a sort of speech into a single German sentence of eighteen words. He did not make use of it, however. When he arrived at the royal palace and was presented, the emperor himself began in such an entirely informal way that it did no occur to his visitor to deliver his prepared German sentence. When he returned from the audience, he said, We got along very well. I proposed to him a plan to exterminate the human race by withdrawing the oxygen from the air for a period of two minutes. I said Chipanik would invent it for him. I think it impressed him. After a while, in the course of our talk, I remembered and told the emperor I had prepared and memorized a very good speech, but had forgotten it. He was very agreeable about it. He said a speech wasn't necessary. He seemed to be a most kind-hearted emperor, with a great deal of plain, good, attractive human nature about him. Necessarily he must have, or he couldn't have unbent to me as he did. I couldn't unbend if I were an emperor. I should feel the stiffness of the position. Franz Joseph doesn't feel it. He is just a natural man, although an emperor. I was greatly impressed by him, and I liked him exceedingly. His face is always the face of a pleasant man, and he has a fine sense of humor. It is the emperor's personality and the confidence all ranks have in him that preserve the real political serenity in what has an outside appearance of being the opposite. He is a man as well as an emperor, an emperor and a man. Clemens and Howells were corresponding with something of an old-time frequency. The work that Mark Twain was doing, thoughtful work with serious intent, appealed strongly to Howells. He wrote, you are the greatest man of your sort that ever lived. There is no use saying anything else. You have pervaded your century almost more than any other man of letters, if not more. And it is astonishing how you keep spreading. You are my shadow of a great rock in a weary land, more than any other writer. Clemens, who was reading Howell's serial Their Silver Wedding Journey, then running in Harper's Magazine, responded, You are old enough to be a weary man with paling interests, but you do not show it. You do your work in the same old delicate and delicious and forceful and searching and perfect way. I don't know how you can, but I suspect, I suspect that to you there is still dignity in human life, and that man is not a joke, a poor joke, the poorest that was ever contrived. Since I wrote my Bible, the Gospel, What is Man, last year, which Mrs. Clemens loathes and shudders over, and will not listen to the 
last half nor allow me to print any part of it man is not to me the respect-worthy person he was before and so i have lost my pride in him and can't write gaily nor praisefully about him any more next morning i have been reading the morning paper i do it every morning well knowing that i shall find in it the usual depravities and basenesses and hypocrisies and cruelties that make up civilization and cause me to put in the rest of the day pleading for the damnation of the human race i cannot seem to get my prayers answered yet i do not despair he was not greatly changed perhaps he had fewer illusions and less iridescent ones and certainly he had more sorrow but the letters to howells do not vary greatly from those written twenty-five years before there is even in them a touch of the old pretense as to mrs clemens's violence i mustn't stop to play now or i shall never get those hellfiard letters answered that is not my spelling it is mrs clemens's i have told her the right way a thousand times but it does no good she never remembers all through this vienna period as during several years before and after henry rogers was in full charge of mark twain's american affairs clemens wrote him almost daily and upon every matter small or large that developed or seemed likely to develop in his undertakings the complications growing out of the type machine and webster failures were endless i hope to goodness i shan't get you into any more jobs such as the typesetter and webster business and the bliss harper campaigns have been oh they were sickeners clemens to rogers november fifteenth eighteen ninety eight the disposal of the manuscripts alone was work for a literary agent the consideration of proposed literary dramatic and financial schemes must have required not only thought but time yet mr rogers comfortably and genially took care of all these things and his own tremendous affairs besides and apologized sometimes when he felt perhaps that he had wavered a little in his attention clemens once wrote him oh dear me you don't have to excuse yourself for neglecting me you are entitled to the highest praise for being so limitlessly patient and good in bothering with my confused affairs and pulling me out of a hole every little while it makes me lazy the way that steel stock is rising if i were lazier like rice nothing could keep me from retiring but i work right along like a poor person i shall figure up the rise as the figures come in and push up my literary prices accordingly 
till I get my literature up to where nobody can afford it but the family. N.B. Look here. Are you charging storage? I am not going to stand that, you know. Meantime, I note those encouraging illogical words of yours about my not worrying, because I am to be rich when I am sixty-eight. Why didn't you have Chero make it ninety, so that I could have plenty of room? It would be jolly good if someone should succeed in making a play out of Is He Dead? Clemens himself had attempted to make a play out of his story, Is He Dead, and had forwarded the manuscript to Rogers. Later he wrote, Put Is He Dead in the fire. God will bless you. I, too. I started to convince myself that I could write a play, or couldn't. I'm convinced. Nothing can disturb that conviction. From what I gather from dramatists, he will have his hands something more than full. But let him struggle. Let him struggle. Is there some way, honest or otherwise, by which you can get a copy of Mayo's play, Puddenhead Wilson, for me? There is a capable young Austrian here who saw it in New York and wants to translate it and see if he can stage it here. I don't think these people here would understand it or take to it, but he thinks it will pay us to try. A couple of London dramatists want to bargain with me for the right to make a high comedy out of the million-pound note. Barkus is willing. This is but one of the briefer letters. Most of them were much longer and of more elaborate requirements. Also they overflowed with the gaiety of good fortune and with gratitude. From Vienna in 1899 Clemens wrote, Why, it is just splendid. I have nothing to do but sit around and watch you set the hen and hatch out those big broods and make my living for me. Don't you wish you had somebody to do the same for you? A magician who can turn steel and copper and Brooklyn gas into gold. I mean to raise your wages again. I begin to feel that I can afford it. I think the hen ought to have a name. She must be called Unberufen. That is a German word which is equivalent to it. Shh, hush, don't let the spirits hear you. The superstition is that if you happen to let fall any grateful jubilation over good luck that you've had or are hoping to have, you must shut square off and say unberufen and knock wood. The word drives the evil spirits away, otherwise they would 
divine your joy or your hopes and go to work and spoil your game set her again do oh look here you are just like everybody merely because i am literary you think i'm a commercial somnambulist and am not watching you with all that money in your hands bless you i've got a description of you and a photograph in every police office in christendom with the remark appended look out for a handsome tall slender young man with a gray mustache and courtly manners and an address well calculated to deceive calling himself by the name of smith don't you try to get away it won't work from the notebook midnight at mrs bailey's home for english governesses two comedies and some song and ballads was asked to speak and did it and rung in the mexican plug a voice the princess hohenlohe wishes you to write on her fan with pleasure where is she at your elbow i turned and took the fan and said your highness's place is in a fairy tale and by and by i mean to write that tale whereat she laughed a happy girlish laugh and we moved through the crowd to get to a writing-table and to get in a strong light so that i could see her better beautiful little creature with the dearest friendly ways and sincerities and simplicities and sweetnesses the ideal princess of the fairy tales she is sixteen or seventeen i judge mental telegraphy mrs clemens was pouring out the coffee this morning i unfolded the neue Frey press began to read a paragraph and said they've found a new way to tell genuine gems from false by the reutgen ray she exclaimed that is what i was going to say she had not seen the paper and there had been no talk about the ray or gems by herself or by me it was a plain case of telegraphy no man that ever lived has ever done a thing to please god primarily it was done to please himself then god next the being who to me is the real god is the one who created this majestic universe and rules it he is the only originator the only originator of thoughts thoughts suggested from within not from without the originator of colors and of all their possible combinations of forces and the laws that govern them of forms and shapes of all forms man has never invented a new one 
he is the only originator he made the materials of all things he made the laws by which and by which only man may combine them into the machines and other things which outside influences suggest to him he made character man can portray it but not create it for he is the only creator he is the perfect artisan the perfect artist end of chapter 205 speeches that were not made read by john greenman